This is Anthony Pompliano. Most of you know me as Pomp. You're listening to the Pomp Podcast, simply the best podcast out there. Let's kick this thing off. Dustin Wilson is a master sommelier and a co-founder of Verve Wine. He was previously the wine director at 11 Madison Park, a three Michelin-starred restaurant in New York City. Dustin was also featured in Song, a popular documentary about the challenging master sommelier exam. In this conversation, we discuss the master sommelier process, how he built Verve Wine, the COVID-19 impact on the hospitality industry, the recent cheating scandal in the wine world, an overview of wine as an investment asset, his favorite wines, the most underrated wine region, and biodynamic wines. I really enjoyed this conversation with Dustin, and I think you guys will really like this one. Before we get into the episode, though, I want to quickly talk about our sponsors. The first is BlockFi. You know that I'm an investor and a really happy user. They currently have three products. The first is you can deposit crypto and get a US dollar loan against your collateral. The second is you can buy and sell cryptocurrencies on their new crypto exchange. Or the third is my favorite product and the one that I use, where you can deposit crypto or digital dollars into an interest-bearing account and earn up to 8.6% APY. That's right. Just like your bank pays you interest on your deposits, BlockFi will pay you interest on your deposits here as well. There's obviously risk, so do your own research. Go check it out at BlockFi.com slash POMP. Again, BlockFi.com slash POMP. Earning up to 8.6% interest in an interest-bearing account is incredibly attractive given the current macro environment. BlockFi.com slash POMP. Our second sponsor is Choice, a new self-directed IRA product that I'm really excited about. Again, I'm a user here as well. If you're listening to this, you are likely part of the 7.1 million Bitcoin owners who have retirement accounts with dollars in them, but not Bitcoin. I was in that situation too. Now you can actually buy real Bitcoin in your retirement account. I'm talking about owning your private keys and using tax advantage dollars to do it too. Absolute game changer. An IRA product that allows you to use tax advantage dollars to buy Bitcoin and hold your private keys. Go check them out at retirewithchoice.com slash pomp. Again, retirewithchoice.com slash pomp. Or you can go in the description and click the link there. Lastly, don't forget that I write a daily letter to over 50,000 investors about business technology and finance. I break down complex topics into easy to understand language while sharing opinions on various aspects of each industry. You can subscribe at pompletter.com. Again, pompletter.com. All right, let's get into this episode with Dustin. I hope you guys enjoy this one. Anthony Pompliano is a partner at Morgan Creek Digital. All opinions expressed by Pomp or his guests on this podcast are solely their opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Morgan Creek Digital or Morgan Creek Capital Management. You should not treat any opinion expressed by Pomp as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of his opinion. This podcast is for informational purposes only. All right, guys. Bang, bang. I have a special treat for you today. Dustin is here. Dustin and I somehow have become good friends. He's one of what, 250 master sommeliers in the world? I think it's less than that, actually. I think it's less like, than that? Yeah, two, yeah, two, 200, two, I don't know, somewhere around 200, 250. That's all. All right. So between 200 and 250 
of him running around the world. And uh, obviously he's number one in our hearts. Uh, Thanks for doing this. (laughs) My pleasure. Good to be here. For those that know nothing about the wine world, know nothing about you, let's just start with your background, uh, kind of everything before Master Sommelier, and then we can get into that process, but just kind of where'd you grow up and how did you eventually want to become a Master Sommelier? Yeah, so I I grew up in Maryland, um, moved around a lot as a kid. I went to four different elementary schools before we kind of settled into a place that I lived when I was younger. And, um, you know, going through school, I I never really knew what I wanted to do. Uh, When I went to college, um, I actually was a uh, geography major um, because I just liked the the topic and uh, had no idea what I was going to do. Um, when I was a teenager, I started working in restaurants just to, to pay bills, you know, be able to put gas in my, my, my tank, my car and things like that, pay insurance. Um, started off working at sub shops like pizza shops, you know, flipping pizzas and, and, you know, making cheesesteaks and things like that. And, uh, when I turned, I think it was 18 or so, um, I went to get a job as a waiter, uh, at TGI Fridays. And um, that was my first waiter gig. And, uh, you know, I was making a lot more money doing that, you know, like getting tips. So um, that was great and, and stayed there for quite some time, actually. Ended up bartending. Um, and, you know, by the time I, I was, so I was doing that through college. And by the time I was graduating college, you know, with a geography degree, I was like, all right, I can, I can either go off and, and try to do something with my degree and make about half of what I'm making now. Uh, or just like keep doing this this bartender thing, so I stayed doing that for a while because I, I just didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, left uh, left TGI Fridays, bounced around to a couple different restaurants, and eventually landed at this restaurant called uh, Ruth's Chris, which is another like chain place steakhouse down in Baltimore. Um, and it was there that I uh, got exposed to wine. So they didn't have a sommelier on staff. Um, but all the waiters were expected to know a little bit about wine at a pretty decent sized wine list, a couple hundred selections. Um, so you're kind of forced to figure it out. And, uh, I was in college at the time and, um, I started learning about it and just kind of caught the bug really, really quickly. I just found it to be really interesting because, you know, it's this kind of mysterious product that I didn't really understand. And there's so many variations of it and it comes from different places in the world. The prices were like, so all over the place. You, know, you could sell a glass of wine for eight bucks or something like that at the time, or there was the most expensive bottle. I remember at, the, at that back then was 2,500 bucks. And um, I just, you know, I remember thinking who in the world would spend that kind of money and why, you know, like why, why would, why do people spend money on, on wine? I don't get it. So I started reading and uh, just caught it like really fast. And, um, you know, found myself in between classes in school, like reading wine books in my car, uh, going to the wine shop quite a bit and just like, you know, walking through and, and looking at bottles and buying things for myself occasionally and just kind of became obsessed. Um, so when I graduated college, I still didn't really know what I wanted to do. Um, I knew I liked wine. I was making money in restaurants and uh, I was also a big skier. So I love to ski. I love the mountains. So um, when I graduated, I was like, all right, I, I'm just gonna I'm gonna head to Colorado. I'm gonna ski for a little while, keep learning about wine, and uh, and then see what happens. And that's exactly what I did. So in in oh what was it, 05, I moved to Colorado to Boulder, and um, 
found this gig at a restaurant called Frosca Food and Wine, where it was only open for dinner, so I could, you know, escape and go skiing during the day. Uh, closed on Sundays, which was awesome. And it had a master sommelier running the uh, the restaurant. He's one of the partners in the restaurant. So it was a great place to learn about wine. So it was awesome. It was like the perfect combination at the time. Um, so I'm learning about wine, skiing, loving life. Everything was great. And uh, my, my goal when I first moved there was I wanted to, uh, I only wanted to stay for about a year or so, maybe two years tops. Um, and then the plan was to come back to Maryland, go to grad school. I decided I was going to get an MBA and go get a, a you know, real job and, uh, and move on with life. But then, you know, two years kind of came and went really quickly. Uh, I was kind of moving my way through the ranks at this restaurant and, um, Bobby, who was my, my boss and, and kind of my mentor at the time gave me, uh, give me my first gig as a sommelier and, um, so here I was, you know, young guy, like finally working in wine. I could see like a, a, a trajectory with it. You know, I could see like a, a career in this. And so I kind of made the decision. I'm like, you know what, fuck it. I'm not going home. I'm staying here. I'm going to keep working on wine. And in order to kind of legitimize it in my mind, this is when I decided to start pursuing the quartermaster sommelier's diploma. Um, as a way to just kind of validate this decision. I'm like, well, if I'm going to stay here and kind of keep working in restaurants and go after this wine thing, I want it to like, feel like I'm, I'm, you know, doing it the right way. So I started down that path. And, and frankly, like when I first started it, I didn't think I was ever going to go all the way with it. My thought was, you know, take like maybe level one, level two and kind of stop there and, and see what happens. Um, but kind of as it goes, you know, once you've kind of completed one level of it, you're, you're kind of inclined to want to keep going. So I get to level three and, um, you know, by that point you're like, well, fuck it. I'm already here. I'm at like the finish line. I got to at least try for the, for the final exam. But, so, uh, so, so what exactly is the levels you're talking about, right? There, there's kind of four levels is my understanding. And as I mentioned earlier, there's only about 200, 250 people who get through all four levels. So maybe just talk a little bit about like, sure. what is a sommelier and then how that process works? Yeah. So, uh, you know, in the, to generalize, a sommelier is just a person in a restaurant who helps you out with your wine selections. Um, normally that person also is probably running the wine program in the restaurant. So they're, you know, building out the wine lists, they're making the selections. They're the ones dealing with the distributors and buying wine. It's kind of like a little business within the business. And, uh, you know, then they're on the floor at night helping guests make selections and selling wine. Um, you know, I think the, the, the word sommelier has kind of expanded since when I first started doing it to mean a lot of different things. Like a lot of people in distribution or people who are teachers in wine, um, or even like certain people who work on the, on the production side will call themselves sommeliers in my mind. And there's an argument in the industry about like, what is the sommelier? What is exactly that, that term mean? But in my mind, it's always been uh, a position in a restaurant um, where you're helping guests with, with wine selections. Um, now the master sommelier title um, is a, is a distinction and a credit, a credit that's like earned through going this through this series of examinations. 
So it's a little bit different. It's not, it's a title. It's not a position in a restaurant like the word sommelier is. Um, and to earn that title, you go through these different levels. So level one is basically a very introductory test where you go and for like two days, you're, uh, you know, you, you take like a wine course. And at the end of the course, you take a written exam and it's like 80 multiple choice questions and you either pass or you don't. Pretty straightforward, the pass rate's really high. <clears throat> um, if you know anything about wine going into it, you can probably do pretty well. And people from all different industries will go take this test just to learn a little bit more. It's really interesting. Level two, uh, you, once you pass that level one, you're, you're allowed to take level two. Um, is more to it. There's, it gets broken into three pieces. There's a service piece, there's a tasting piece, and there's a, uh, the theory or kind of like the written examination part. Um, it's definitely harder. Uh, you probably need a little bit of restaurant experience to be able to get through it. Um, you need to have been blind tasting and like learning how to blind taste a little bit in order to, uh, to get through it. Um, it's still quite basic, but it's definitely much harder than the first exam. So the, the rate of the pass rate goes from call it like 90 or 95% at level one down to about 50% for level two. Uh, but let's say you get through it, then you're uh, entitled to go for level three, which is called the advanced exam. And the advanced exam is the same three parts. There's theory, there's service, there's tasting. Um, but, you know, again, a much higher level of, uh, of difficulty. Um, there's more to the blind tasting. There's a lot more to the service exam. The level of questioning for theory is much deeper. This is kind of like really what separates, this is the biggest jump. It's what separates kind of like the real pros from, you know, maybe an enthusiastic uh, consumer, for instance. Um, the pass rate for that is usually somewhere in the vicinity of like call it 20 to 30% most years. Um, and then once you've passed that, and a lot, you know, a lot of people will take that several times. I took it a couple of times before I got through. Once you're through that, then you have to wait to be invited to take the master's exam. So that's level four. And uh, it's basically the exact same test as the advanced exam in, in, in the sense of how it's set up. Same number of wines that you blind taste, uh, the same three sections. But again, the level of difficulty of questioning goes up. The intricacy of service that you need to perform goes up. Um, and the wines that they pour you for the blind tasting get a little bit more difficult. And you have to score in, to pass, you have to score at a higher rate. So it's quite difficult and the, the pass rate drops down to somewhere below 10%. Some years it's like 3%, some years it's five, some years it's a little bit more than that. Um, but if you get a 10% pass rate, that's pretty, that's really strong. Um, you know, and a lot of people never get through. I know a lot of, people in, the, in my industry have taken it numerous times and never get through. And the thing is you can only take it once a year. So there's a lot of people who have been in the program, you know, you, usually by the time you even get to that level, you've put in years of your life to begin with. And then I know some people have taken the master's exam a dozen times, you know, or close to a dozen times. It's just an enormous amount of your time and energy that goes into it. So it's uh, it's a very difficult test. So, I knew nothing about wine in general. Uh, I would literally embarrass myself if I tried to pronounce 99% of wines. Uh, and I think we were at dinner once and 
you or somebody else brought up uh, this documentary, Psalm, uh, which you were featured in. And uh, so, of course, I went home and uh, Plin and I watched it. And I was blown away at one, the fact that you subjected yourself to this, <laughs> but two, just learning about how intense it is, right? So for those that don't know, you should one, definitely go watch the documentary, but two, it's it's things like uh, the blind test, right? The, the um, Most people hear that and they're like, oh, okay, so what? You just close your eyes and you taste a wine. But it's not just like, hey, is this red or white? It's literally, where is the wine from? What year is it? What type of wine? What are the ingredients? Like, like the level of understanding and, and really expertise you have to have uh, is pretty compelling. I mean, it, it blew my mind to the point where uh, my favorite part of the documentary is like somebody's tasting wine and they're describing it as like a new can of tennis balls or it tastes <laughs> like or smells like cat piss. And like, and, right. and you're kind of like, wait a minute, this is such a uh, granular understanding of wine and the different wine regions and, and t periods of time, et cetera, that the study period, like how long did you study to actually pass that? Because it's not like you just study for three weeks, show up and like cross your fingers and hope you pass, right? No, no. The uh, So the total amount of time for me from when I took my introductory test at first level until I passed my MS was about five years. Um, which, you know, there's people who have passed, who've gone through it much, like not much quicker than that, but a little quicker than that. It's relatively fast though. There's, I would say the average has got to be somewhere in the like seven to nine year range for, I think a lot of people. Um, so it's a significant amount of time and, you know, leading up to the exam, I mean, you're studying probably a year out if not like you know probably call it at least eight months um if you're if you're not studying by six months out and prepping you're you're behind um it's just an enormous amount of information uh to prepare for and you know the blind tasting piece of it is really difficult like getting to the point where you can identify grape varieties and uh you know where something's coming from and um you know picking the right vintage and things like that for the wines it's, it sounds like it's one of these things that you need to be like an innate taster for, but it's not necessarily that. It's just a shit ton of practice um, and really understanding and doing it over and over and over and over again. So uh, it's a lot. So the most important question I'm going to ask you is as you're doing all that practice, how the hell do you not get drunk every single day? Right? You're just literally tasting and tasting and tasting and tasting. Like, how do you not just get hammered day in and day out for a year? <laughs> Yeah. Um, well, we spit everything. So that's, that's the short answer. Um, you know, what does the, that mean? You, you know, you, you put it in your mouth, you swish it around and then you spit it right out and you can get enough information from the wine. You know, you're looking for very specific things. You're looking for like acidity and texture and tannins and checking for alcohol level and, you know, specific things on the palate that you don't, you don't need to drink it to, to experience that and to, uh, to analyze it. So, um, you know, you're spitting pretty much everything you taste until of course, you know, it's like late at night, you saw in the movie, you know, when you're tasting with your buddies practicing and it's like two in the morning, the last couple of bottles you're usually consumed. So, um, <laughs> it's about understanding when to stop spitting and when to start drinking. Uh, my one little story on that. And it's, it's, it's interesting just as a person in the industry, I've worked at a, a lot of these big, organized tastings where, you know, you walk into like a, a huge facility and there's like 
call it three or four dozen tables with wineries pouring their wines and things like that and hundreds of wines being tasted. And whenever it's like a, an industry only tasting, you know, everybody's really pro. They know what they're doing. They, you know, they taste, they spit, they're taking their notes and they're out the door. And there's usually a lot of people are usually even working that night if they're in restaurants, you know, they, so they go to these tastings during the day, they do their thing and they head out to their job. Uh, and then I've also worked at when it's, you know, the average consumer going to these tastings and the first 30, 45 minutes are completely normal. And then the end of these things are always the disaster because everybody has been, they're like, oh, I'm just taking these little sips, you know, but it, it really adds up and uh, it's a lot, it's, it's interesting. I love it. I love it. Um, <laughs> once you get through the four levels um in the documentary it's very obvious like uh this is a huge moment right because as you said five seven nine years uh plenty used to was actually making fun of me during it because even though i knew you passed when you actually got told you passed i'm like running around the room being like let's go dustin (laughs) (laughs) what do people go do once they actually uh are awarded the title of master sommelier like what are some do they go to a restaurant do they go somewhere else like what's the kind of the, the normal path yeah, it's, I wouldn't say there is any normal path necessarily. I mean, I think, you know, the reason that a lot of people go through it, though, is it does open a lot of doors for you. It opens a, a world of opportunities because to earn the distinction is is really rare, right? So there's a lot of companies that are willing to pay for that and want somebody on their team that has earned that. Um, so your your opportunities that come your way are really broadens um, and a lot of doors get open. So, but it can be in all aspects of the industry. So, you know, I personally, when I passed, I wanted to run a really significant wine program in a restaurant setting, because in my mind, you know, as like I said, being a sommelier is being in a restaurant. It's a, there's an element of service to that. Um, so I went off and became, or I, I shouldn't say I went off and just did it, but I got the opportunity to be the wine director at 11 Madison Park here in New York. So I ran that program for about four years. Um, and, you know, it was crazy time to be a part of that restaurant. It was when they, you know, were being purchased from USHG and the Danny Meyer group and, uh, you know, elevated to three stars Michelin and making their way up the 50, the top 50 restaurants in the world list and things like that. It was an awesome experience. But, you know, there's a lot of people that maybe use the earning the MS as a chance to actually leave restaurants and go into different aspects of the industry. So that could be importing or distribution, wholesale. Um, it could be going to work for a specific winery, uh, like in, in California, for example, like say Napa Valley, you, you go to become the kind of, uh, you know, global wine ambassador for a particular brand, for instance, and travel the world and sell, you know, that wine or be a representative of that winery globally. Um, you know, there's some people that, uh, that use it to become educators. Um, and it's great for that too. So there's there's a lot of different ways you can utilize it. Um, there's not necessarily one path. I think it really depends on what you're passionate about, which part of the industry you're the most interested in. Um, and what you really love to do. Um, you know, for me, for a while, it was restaurants. Um, obviously, that's changed since then. But, um, you know, there's, there's no single, you know, one thing that a lot of people do. 
So you've obviously uh, left kind of the restaurant scene and you started Verve Wine. Uh, maybe talk to us a little bit, just like, what is that? Where are the current locations and kind of what are you guys building uh, under that brand? Yeah. So, um, you know, I spent, call it close to 20 years, right? In restaurants. Yeah, that's about right. Uh, and I think like 11 or 12 of those were as a sommelier in, in restaurants, you know, culminating with that that job at 11 Madison Park. My mind, you know, I wasn't at the time going to find, it, it was, you know, the best restaurant, the best wine director, best sommelier job probably in the world. Um, you don't really get much better than that. So as like a, as a SOM, you don't, you're not going to leave 11 Madison Park and go, you know, be a wine director or a sommelier somewhere else. It's just, you're at the top at that point. So, you know, and for me, I always kind of wanted to have my own business. Um, I thought for a really long time that it was going to be restaurant, um, having, you know, spent 20 years in restaurants, uh, towards the end of it, I kind of realized, you know, what it takes to do that. And, and I needed a little change of pace. Um, so what I saw actually was an opportunity to, to get into the retail space in a really interesting way. Uh, and so when I left, um, I started Verve and, and Verve is, you know, if you break it down very simply, it's a wine retail business. Uh, we've got uh, locations, physical locations here in New York. We've got one in Tribeca. Um, we've got a location out in San Francisco. Uh, we are later this year opening a location in Chicago. Uh, that we're super excited about. So it's a growing brand. Um, for me, though, the the opportunity was always on the the e-commerce side because um, what I saw that was lacking was, you know, me as a wine person, as a person that like loves to drink wine and know knows what I like to drink, um, and you know has a fairly discerning, uh, you know, palate and and choice when it comes to drinking things. I know where I like to go to buy wine in New York City. Um, it's not just any old random place. There's only like a handful of places that I think do the wine curation thing really well. Um, but what was missing from that, I think, was like the e-commerce the e side of things. You know, you physically had to kind of go there or talk to somebody there, pick up a phone or email somebody. So to me, the, the experience of buying wine was still pretty uh, still pretty backwards or just outdated or archaic or whatever you want to call it. Um, so I felt like there was an opportunity there to, to get into the e-commerce part of wine, um, but have it be that curation, have it be a curated piece of it way where, you know, there's the wine.com, for instance, there's like wine library, there's other people that do the e-commerce thing, but they're doing it on like big brand discount wines. They're, uh, you know, large like wineries that you can find and, you know, they're very ubiquitous. You can find them anywhere. Um, not necessarily the kind of really interesting things that I personally love to drink myself. So where I saw the chance to do something was like, okay, let's have the same level of curation, but let's get it online and just make it easier for people like myself to find these things on the internet. So that's kind of what we did. Uh, so we launched in 2016 uh, with the location here in New York and the e-commerce site um, have since grown that obviously. And uh, the goal is, I mean, in the long term is to ideally kind of plop some physical locations into really strategic places um, where it makes it a little bit easier for us to do the fulfillment for e-commerce um, in, a, in a meaningful way. 
and um, you know, basically to get the kind of cool stuff that I like to drink and that, you know, people that love wine are really into, just make it easier for uh, consumers in other markets to get those wines because we're really spoiled here in New York, right? Like we, we get access to things that um, not a lot of other markets get access to. So, you know, wine drinkers that are really passionate, that are really into it in say the middle country somewhere, um, don't get access to the same sorts of things that we do here in New York. So how do we build that access? Um, and that's something that like the wine.coms and, you know, the bigger e-commerce brands aren't doing. Like they're only working with brands that you can find anywhere and everywhere. They're not working with like the really curated stuff. So that's, that's kind of our, in a nutshell, that's what we're doing. Yeah, I, I am, uh, we're friends, but I will vouch and say that the whole idea of ordering this stuff online is a thousand times easier than walking to uh, a wine store, trying to figure out what do I want? Where is it? You know, do they have it? All, all of those kind of things. Um, we, we regularly order and, and uh, literally you can get same day delivery. Like it, it's kind of like an Amazon like experience almost, right? But the wines are um, brought right to your door and it's this great thing. Does it feel to you like uh, the wine industry in general, other than you named kind of one or two outliers, just technology really hasn't been integrated into the industry in the way that we've seen maybe in other retail type businesses. And some of that has to do with, uh, I'll call it like the mystique of wine, like the whole idea of the high price points and, and the stories behind some of the product and all of that. Or is it just literally like, there's not that many people who understand technology. And so they're just doing what they've always done. Yeah, I think it's a mix. Um, you know, there is a, a kind of a romance to the kind of the traditionalism of good wine. Uh, you know, when a lot of people talk about the great wineries of the world, you know, they tend to be like small places that are little farms and, you know, it's like families that have owned these small properties for generations and things like that. And there's like a, a romance behind um, kind of these old school, small, um, very traditional like winery businesses, right? So it's not necessarily cool to be really technology forward in wine because wine in itself, like the fun stuff anyway, is, is very traditional. And there's like this kind of um, adherence to that. So I think that's, that's part of it. Um, I think the other part of it is that, uh, you know, the, the people that tend to get into the wines that like I like to drink and, you know, other professionals, um, or people in the industry or really enthusiastic wine drinkers like to drink. Um, the people that start those retail businesses are typically, you know, very much all about the wine and all about the curation process. They're not necessarily tech people. And I, you know, I'm certainly one of those people. I'm not a tech person myself. Um, but there's like an element of it's, it's all about the wine for them. And it's all about the, you know, the curation. It's all about the one-on-one, -on -one, you know, customer interaction and things like that and kind of keeping things small, um, which I totally respect. And there's nothing, nothing against that by any stretch of the imagination. But um, where I saw the, the opportunity was like, you know, there's a lot of other people out there that are like me that just want to like be able to order stuff and like not have it be a pain in the ass um, that, you know, want to have that same, you know, where I know where to go in New York City to go buy a bottle in a store, like you kind of want to know where's the cool place to go buy a bottle online. It's the same mentality. And that's, that's kind of where we saw a chance to, 
to be a little bit different and do something differently. For sure. And, and obviously um, you guys have over the last four years built a, a, an awesome business, both in New York and you've got the San, Fran San Francisco location uh, and then COVID hits. And uh, I remember when um, first it was like more of a virus and not yet the government mandated shutdown. Yep. Uh, and then we had a conversation when actually the mandate went in place. Hey, retail businesses, you have to shut down uh, in New York. I think at one point it was a little bit gray area, like alcohol uh, businesses. Are they essential? Are they not? Um, I think you guys ended up shutting down, but thankfully you had the e-commerce business. And, and, and so it was kind of this thing where like, it almost feels like the virus has accelerated a lot of trends that were already underway. Uh, one of those across all retail uh, verticals being e-commerce, obviously. Uh, and you guys were really well positioned uh, over the last couple of years to kind of capitalize on the fact that, hey, if people can't leave and they've got to order things to their computer, Verve is, Verve is one of the best ways to do that, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it's been really interesting because like, um, again, kind of thinking about how people normally think about wine retail is a lot of people think like, Oh, where's the good wine shop in my town? Or, you know, I've got to go find this little place that has like the cool things, you know? So, and that's very much, I think a lot of the ways that people still shop for wine um, that are into it. They like to find the little place that that's in their town that they can go to that they trust or that has an interesting selection or whatever. Um, so when we had this idea to do e-commerce for the same types of wines and like kind of make that more of a national thing, uh, it was really hard for us to get people to buy into that. Like there was still very much a mentality of like, Oh, Verve's just a shop down in Tribeca and that's it. You know, like that's, it was really difficult to kind of describe and, and, um, get people to buy into like the, the bigger vision. Um, but then, you know, to your point, COVID hits, we were having a, not a hard time. We we're accelerating that, that e-commerce business, but it wasn't like, it was taking a lot longer for it to catch on than we were kind of hoping it would. Um, but then COVID hits and it just like shot it way up. Um, and you're right. We were really well positioned for that. And I'm really thankful for it. Um, we actually never did shut down. Um, we, we changed the model a little bit, um, or I should say we changed our operations and how we, how we operate, but we never actually fully shut down. Um, I frankly, my partner and I were like, when this first came around, we thought we were going to have to close. In my mind, I'm like, how is selling booze going to be an, a quote unquote essential business? I just didn't see it. I'm like, no, this is, this is a luxury. Like who needs to drink? You know, booze is basically the last legal drug, you know, like <laughs> there's no way with like hospitals, grocery stores and liquor stores. Like I just didn't see it. So we thought we were going to shut down. I'm like making plans on how we're going to, you know, deal with furlough and employees and how that's, how that's going to go down and all that. And then it comes out that we were actually considered essential. Like we fell into that. So, you know, we're obviously really pumped about that and thankful for it, but we also wanted to do what we could to protect our team and uh, kind of change the way we did things a little bit. And we realized that, having customers continue to come into the store wasn't, wasn't great. Um, so we actually shut the stores down uh, for public walk-ins and things like that and just went fully e-commerce. And it was a kind of a risky move because we didn't, at the time it was still made up a, a, you know, a percentage of the business, but it wasn't a huge percentage of the business. 
but uh, we kind of leaned all the way into it and um, realized that it was it was a really great thing. So the stores have effectively become small warehouses uh, and fulfillment centers for all of our e-commerce orders. And for the last, call it two and a half months or however long it's been now, we've been like a hundred percent e-commerce company. Um, and the growth of the business has been pretty significant. Like can't, I can't complain about it at all. Um, so it's been really interesting to see what's happened. And to your point, it's, it's taken what we were pushing for for a long time and just accelerated it really quickly. Um, you know, and our, our biggest concern now is how long is that going to last when things do fully reopen? Are we going to continue that online business? Um, and that's yet to be seen, but I think we, we've certainly acquired a lot of new customers, which is great. So, you know, if we're doing our job well, we've got good products and continue to give good service. You know, we're really hoping that we can retain a lot of what we've acquired over this course of time. For sure. And, and right now you guys ship solely in the cities that the physical locations are in. Do you ship nationwide? How, how does that work? No, we ship nationwide, um, not to every single state. So, you know, alcohol is still a pretty, you know, regulated um, products. So each state is different. It's a lot of post-prohibition laws that every state has its own rules and regulations. So it's a real big pain in the ass, to be honest. Um, so we don't ship everywhere, but I think we ship out of, out of the lower 48. I think it's like 40 of those lower 48. So most of it. Um, you know, we do local delivery in Manhattan and San Francisco, seven by seven. Um, and then we ship to everywhere else that we can ship to. Um, so yeah, we, we definitely get out beyond. So we have a lot of customers in other states too. Like I said, like you don't, if you live in Nebraska or Kansas or, you know, Wisconsin or something, you just don't get access to the same kinds of things that you see in California or New York. So the people that love wine that are out there, they need a place to buy it. And um, so we ship, we do ship quite a amount of wine, a good amount of wine outside of New York and, and California. Got it. And then uh, you're incredibly humble, so you won't say this, but I'll say it. Uh, you're my most connected friend when it comes to uh, the New York City hospitality, restaurant, uh, alcohol scene. Um, <laughs> and, and I remember at one point you uh, kind of a couple of weeks into the, the shutdown um, of a lot of these businesses, basically told me like, hey, it does not look good for a lot of these restaurants. It doesn't look very good for uh, most of the hospitality industry. Um, and so maybe kind of just give an update on like, what does that look like in terms of how some of these uh, businesses have been affected? How effective have they been at kind of, uh, if you're a restaurant, maybe transitioning to online type uh, business? And then if you had to put a number on it, like what percentage of let's say businesses in Manhattan in the hospitality industry don't come back kind of after this in, in an unfortunate manner. Yeah. You know, it's, it's really hard to tell. Um, you know, I think as time continues to go on and um, you know, we see things start to come back to normal, particularly here in New York, we'll realize who really had trouble and who didn't, you know, I don't think anybody necessarily wants the press of like, you know, we're folding, we're giving in, we're, we're done, we're, you know, waving the white flag. So I think we're probably hearing a lot less in the media about what's actually going on. Um, I know places like Eater, uh, which is, you know, a pretty good resource for a lot of what's happening in the hospitality restaurant world. Um, they've been trying to keep track of who's closing for good, 
here in New York, um, but I'm sure they haven't gotten to everybody. They're just working with like trying to figure out who the biggest players and like the most popular restaurants are that are shutting fully shutting down. But, you know, restaurants have it really tough, right? Like, because um, a, they need diners coming through. They've got a lot of staff, those restaurant, the restaurant business model is, it's a very small margin business. Um, they have a ton of expenses. The, I think it's really, it's going to be really hard for them to bounce back. And I think the longer that this goes on and the longer that they stay closed and they're continuing to pay rent, they don't have the huge, you know, piles of money just sitting in, in stores, you know, to be able to continue to pay rent almost indefinitely on their spaces. You know, they need diners in their spaces to be able to continue to operate. So there's a, there's a limitation on how long they can last um, through this closure. You know, smarter businesses that, you know, have saved up some money or have figured out really creative ways to operate through this, whether it's via meal kits or to go, or, you know, turning their, their, their restaurants into grocery stores or trying to sell wine. Um, you know, they're maybe bridging the gap a little bit, um, but, you know, for a restaurant to actually operate and, and continue to live, they need to be full. They need to, they need diners coming in, they need to be full. <clears throat> so even when we do reopen, whenever that ends up being, the 50% capacity thing and the six foot uh, between each table uh, regulations that are gonna be put in place for social distancing, which I think if you talk to any restaurateur or anybody in the industry, they agree that these are all good measures in order to keep everybody safe. Uh, it makes it really hard for them to continue to survive because particularly in New York where rents are really high, um, it's to, to be operating at 50% capacity is a losing battle. You're, you're losing money. You're not making money at that point. Um, our, my best guess is most restaurants in New York needs to be at least at like 65% or maybe 70% capacity to just to break even. Um, so, you know, I think it's going to be really hard. And I think the, the situation is pretty dire. Um, I think the larger groups, you know, the USHGs of the world or the places that have multiple restaurants and, you know, a lot of good backers or if like it's a small organization, but maybe has good, good capital behind them, some good investors behind them, they'll be able to get by because they have access to that uh, additional, additional funding. But the small, a lot of small mom and pops, you know, the places that are in our neighborhoods that we love to go to that are local to us and whatnot, that don't have big bank accounts or access to capital, they're going to have a really hard time. So, I mean, my, my suggestion is, you know, patron those businesses as much as you can if you love them and you want them to get through this. Um, and, my, you know, my girlfriend's going to give me hell for saying this, but buy from, if they're doing stuff to go, buy from them directly. Don't buy through third-party apps like Grubhub and, and Seamless and things like that. You know, because if you haven't been paying attention, those companies take fees and, you know, it hurts. It's, it's tough for the restaurants. So buy them. <laughs> She's already giving me shit here. <laughs> we, we won't say, we won't say why, but there's a specific reason why she's giving yeah. me shit. Yeah. So I, I guess my, my, my whole thing is I don't know what it's going to look like. I think the situation really sucks. It's going to be tough. I don't know. I've heard some people say they think 30% of the restaurants in New York are going to close. Some people say 50%. Some people are saying 75 I don't know what the right number is. Um, I think the longer this goes on, that percentage is going to grow. And um, 
you know, they're in a really tough spot. And, and frankly, it's, there's a lot of uncertainty too. Even if they can open up into 50% capacity, you know, it's really tough to understand who wants to go out to eat in these times, right? Like, I don't know if I want to go out to a restaurant and be around a bunch of other random people that I don't know. And, uh, you know, I think that, so it's uncertain to, there's uncertainty around demand. Um, there's uncertainty around like, you know, what the regulations exactly are going to be, you know, how long certain restaurants are able to survive through this. Uh, so a lot of it's yet to be seen, but, um, you know, there it's, it's a really, really tough situation. The dining scene in New York is going to be changed significantly for a very long time. Yeah. The thing that's interesting to me is, uh, it's almost like forcing a restaurant to only be allowed to be open at 50% capacity. It sounds like you're confirming, you're really telling them, Hey, you got to open and run a loss for some period of time. Correct. Right. But yeah. like, like you either, if you're the restaurant owner, you either say, okay, I'm not going to open at 50%. Even though I could be open at 50%, I'm going to wait until I can open at some higher percentage so that while I have my staff there and, and customers, I'm not running a loss or, hey, it's important to be open, you know, when things come back. So people, you stay top of mind and you drive foot traffic and, you know, all those kind of things. It, it's kind of a hard decision, right? There's kind of no playbook. No one's done this before. No, it's really hard. You know, some people are, will look at it and say, okay, do I, <clears throat> am I losing more money by staying closed or would I lose more money by opening up? There's other risk factors of opening up too. Like, and I'm seeing this in other states now that have already reopened and people are going back to these restaurants. What happens if one of your staff members uh, catches COVID and you've got to shut down for another period of time? You know, that's, that can be a nail in the coffin for a lot of these restaurants. It's not cheap to reopen your restaurant. You have to buy a lot of inventory. You got to hire your staff back. Chances are if you've changed your menu or you change your operations around it all to accommodate these new times, you got to retrain. So there's going to be a few days at least of, you know, spending money on labor where you're not bringing any money in. Um, to go through all of that and then potentially have to shut down again is a massive risk, right? You spend a ton of money, reopen, and a couple of weeks later, you got to shut down again for a couple of weeks. It's a huge hit. Um, so, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a huge risk, I think, to reopen into these times. There's no perfect playbook on it yet. Um, I don't think it's going to return to normalcy until you probably have the vaccine in place and, you know, everything's kind of cool to be out and about again. Anytime before that is really tough. And that's why you see people like Danny Meyer making these big pronouncements that he's not going to open any of his restaurants until, you know, maybe there's a vaccine. Um, he doesn't want to operate under these conditions. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty, it's pretty crazy. Uh, Balaji Srinivasan came on and he also said something that I thought was really interesting, which was basically not only are there all the challenges you described, but you're also then asking these restaurants to essentially be able to operate in like bio defense mode, right? Because they also are fighting the virus. They have to clean tables much more often. They've got to be able to make sure that their staff isn't sick um, right. and, and do kind of all of these things that, they probably directionally were already doing it sounds like, but now it's just on hyperdrive because there are specific health, you know, concerns. you know, the last thing in the world you want is to be in the press labeled as a hotspot for COVID. Right. Or, you know, what, what happens now too is like kind of the restaurant that maybe people want to go to is the one that has the best sanitization policies, you know, and, and tends to be the cleanest and it's the most on display with that. 
you got to think about how you're doing your marketing, your social media, like you got to tell your customers and your guests, like what is it that you're doing to make sure that all your preventative measures are in place. Um, but then there's these additional costs too, like PPE for your staff, masks, gloves, temperature checks, all this stuff that needs to be put in place. It's a whole nother cost item that just never took place before. And if you're doing it the right way, if you're changing out your mask twice a shift, call it throwing those things away, you know, you're buying masks and gloves and stuff at a huge rate uh, for these, you know, fairly large teams of people. It's a, it's a cost item that just didn't exist before this. So to open into a new landscape with all these risks where you can only operate at 50% capacity, there's additional cost items. It's, it's like a, it's really difficult. Yeah. Um, another thing that seems to be a new cost item specifically for wine, uh, and, and we've talked about it before, is just uh, the tariffs. And so maybe kind of help us understand uh, all of the taxation uh, that's been going on. Um, some of it sounds like uh, there was threats of it happening. Some of it's already been passed. And, and uh, just how these additional costs when it comes to the wine industry changes the economics for importers, exporters, and, and various retail type locations. Yeah. So it's funny because once uh, the, the tariffs was like the big topic in the industry for like two months and then COVID hit and, you know, now tariffs feel like it's, it's, it's a complete topic of the past, but um, it's, it's definitely having a significant impact, particularly on French wine. Uh, because you're seeing, um, I think it's like a 25%. There, there was two, there were two potential tariffs that were being put in place. Um, and I can't remember anymore which one was which, but one was for 25%, and another one was going to be for 100%. And I think that was like the, the like Airbus deal that Trump was pissed off about or something. Um, but what ended up happening, I think that one got pushed off, and the 25% tariff on French wine was still put into place and you know all these things are a little bit on lag time because you know things are on the water they take time to get here um, but now things are starting to arrive and you know you're seeing these wines that are, are certainly more expensive so how that ends up happening to what the effect is on the consumer I think kind of depends on uh, what type of consumer you are so if what I mean by that is if you're a pretty savvy wine consumer and you're, you're very particular about the types of wines that you buy in the specific wineries, like let's say that you really love Burgundy or Rhone wines or you know certain, certain champagnes or something like that, you're really specific about the types of wines that you buy, the specific wineries, you're gonna search them out and they're gonna be more expensive than they were in the past. Like if you're used to buying them before, now they've got a premium on them and you as a maybe a collector or wine enthusiast or whoever, um, you've got to make a decision on is that extra cost worth it to you or not? Um, and we've seen a lot of that. Like, you know, there's certain Burgundy wines, for example, that we've always sold uh, the last few years and you know, you get pushback from, from collectors, they understand the situation, but maybe in the past they would have taken a couple of cases of something, they might only take one case or six bottles, something like that. So you're seeing a, a downshift in the quantities for sure based on that. Got I it. think on, for, for the average consumer that isn't necessarily paying as close attention or have like the same um, 
same restrictions with choice and kind of, you know, really want specific things, you probably aren't going to notice it all that much because, you know, us for like a, a retailer, for instance, you know, we need to make sure that we have certain categories and price points that we're always hitting. So, you know, if we need a Sauvignon Blanc from France, for instance, that comes in and hits the shelf at 15 bucks, we're going to find that wine no matter who's making it. We're going to find one that we like that fits the right price, fits the right category and put it in that slot. Now it might be, not be the same ones before, uh, but the average consumer that's come through the door might not realize that it's different and they're not going to necessarily care. So I think it really depends on where you fall, you know, in the, in the spectrum of uh, the type of wine consumer that you are. If you're savvy and you're used to buying things, you're going to notice it because shit's just more expensive now. Um, I don't think that that kind of normal consumers gonna are gonna feel it as much. Yeah. So most people listening to this are going to be that average retail consumer, uh, but everyone is fascinated with uh, the collectors or kind of the investors in wine. Uh, yep. We've talked a lot on the podcast in the past about like fine art or the private art market, um, mm-hmm. and to me, the wine investing world seems you know, somewhat comparable. Uh, it's a different product, obviously, but maybe talk a little bit about kind of your understanding of how that world works and, and what's going on there. Um, as we've kind of, the world has changed a little bit. Yeah. It's, um, you know, wine investing, I think is actually a really interesting kind of alternative asset. If you think about it, it's, it, it does pretty well. If you're the type of person that can spend wisely and then sit on everything and just not consume, you know, it's a little different than art where you're just putting something up on the wall. Like, you know, you could, it would be like if you could, there was some benefit to taking that piece of art down and like destroying it. <laughs> like, uh, wine is, it sits in your cellar for a certain amount of time and it can really appreciate value, but then you're also tempted to want to just pop it open and drink it and then it's gone. Um, so if, if you can buy, buy smartly and keep things around, you can actually make a pretty significant amount of money on wine. Now, the difference is you need access to it. Um, you need to be able to understand like what the good things are and what aren't. Um, but, you know, it, I think it's a really interesting investment um, and, and you can certainly do well. Where it still is yet to be seen how this, the tariff situation is gonna impact that. I think for the, the really high ends of wine collecting, um, it's not going to matter too much because I think the same wines are going to be still in just as much demand. Everybody's buying them for the same price anyway. Um, and maybe the acceleration in value is going to slow down a little bit because they're already starting out at a premium. But I still think that over time, those wines are going to be worth a lot more um, and there, you know, you can still do well. What's been interesting in the segment for me is like, there's um, other people are starting to get into this game and, and one company in particular that I've kind of like talked with who is finds wine collecting to be a fascinating, um, you know, kind of segment for investing. Um, they're starting to try to democratize this a little bit because I think it, it really has been left up to the collectors and the people who really know wine to, um, to make smart decisions when it comes to this. So the average investor isn't actually gonna touch it, even though it is a really good investment. You need the access, you need the relationships, you need to know what you're buying. Uh, 
there are companies now that are starting to put some algorithmic um, structure around how to invest in wines and doing basically all the trading for you. Um, so to me, that's pretty interesting. Um, so I think the industry is, is evolving and changing a little bit up to that end. Uh, but it's yet to be seen like how well some of these things work. Yeah. So this is, might be a really stupid question. Uh, but let's say that you are one of those wine collectors and you're buying, you know, you, you mentioned earlier, $2,500 bottle of wine. How do you actually know whatever's on the label is actually what's in the bottle? So whether it's the type of wine, uh, where it comes from, uh, how old it is, like, like all of these things that kind of make up that story and, and the uh, kind of romantic element that drives the price it appears. Like how do people actually verify that stuff? Yeah, I mean, source is, is a huge part of it. Um, I would imagine it's pretty similar. I don't know much about our collecting, but I would imagine it's pretty similar to that where there could potentially be like a fake or something like that. Um, but the source is hugely important, whether you're buying directly from the winery itself or you're buying through an importer or you're buying through, you know, a retailer like us, for instance, that you can guarantee the provenance and where it's coming from. Um, that's a massive part of it. Uh, you know, outside of that, when you start getting into the world of auctions and trading between collectors or kind of the more open market on wines, uh, it gets tricky. Now there, there are a number of people out there that do a lot of work into verification of wines and, um, there are ways to kind of check for authenticity, um, without necessarily just popping the wine open and, and, and checking on it. Uh, but you do run some risk, you know, if you watched that movie Sour Grapes or you've heard of Rudy Kinnearwan, who was kind of the, the famous guy who got arrested for a lot of fraudulent wine sales. Um, there's a lot of fake wine out there on the market. Um, and some of it can be very difficult to tell if it's a fake or not, uh, if they've done a good job. So, you know, unless you're buying it, the, the best way to know that you're, what you're getting is the real deal is to buy it on release, either from a trusted retailer or from the winery directly. Outside of that, you start to really increase your risk of buying something. Uh, there is a risk, a percentage risk of, of buying something fraudulent. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, one more topic before we get to the fun stuff. Uh, there was recently some massive drama uh, and, and frankly, just a cheating scandal in the, uh, in the sommelier world. Uh, maybe talk us through just kind of like what happened and, and where things stand now. Sure. Um, so this was, uh, about a year, a little over a year and a half ago now it was towards the end of 2018, I believe. I think it was like September, October, 2018. Um, so what happened was at the master sommelier exam, uh, one of the examining uh, masters sent out an email to a handful of people. Um, and I think it was people that he was close with who were taking the test and basically gave them a couple of the answers to the blind tasting exam. Like said, Hey, you know, here's a couple of wines that are in lineup for your blind tasting. Um, and what happened was, is that, uh, that email was brought to light after the exam was over. Uh, so nobody reported that email during the exam. Everybody went, took their test. Bunch of people passed that year. Um, it was actually a record number of people passing the exam. So it already to a lot of us were like, 
wow, that's a huge number of people. It was like 20% or something like that. It was like 20 people or something. Um, so it seemed a little weird, uh, but then about a month later, it comes out that this email was sent out ahead of time and a handful of, of candidates received it. What they did with it was was really up in the air, whether they passed it along or not, even whether they used the information or even if they saw it before they went into their test. Um, but what happened was that the organization decided to um, do an investigation, um, which I later found out wasn't, wasn't really much of an investigation. It was basically they sat around the table and just decided to, instead of doing an investigation, to just yank everybody's uh, pin everybody's uh, uh, diploma that passed and tell them to retake the test. Uh, and it turned into a huge thing because A, there was obviously the breach, um, which made it public. But then, you know, it, the big question became, did they handle this the correct way? Uh, you know, is it right to just, it, you know, kind of consider that everybody maybe cheated on this thing or had had, you know, access to this information and maybe used it incorrectly um, and cheated. So um, it was a huge deal in the organization. Um, you know, there's there's still a lot of people, myself included, who feel it wasn't necessarily handled properly. Other people will argue with me about that. Um, it's, it's kind of settled down at this point, but for about a year or so, it was a huge deal in the organization. And some of those people have since gone back and retaken the tests and passed. Some people uh, went back and failed, uh, so not gotten through. Some people hated how it was handled and have decided to just exit the organization altogether and not pursue it anymore. So, um, you know, I think it was a big learning for the organization of how to maybe uh, protect themselves against this kind of stuff in the future, but then also you know, if and when these things happen, how to think about it and how to act the next time around. Yeah, pretty crazy that this all happened, especially after watching the Psalm documentary and understanding uh, the pressure involved in all of this. Uh, you know, you could see, again, just people caving, right? And, and so yeah, well, it's wild. You know, you think about it like, you know, people put years of their lives into this thing. It's one of the biggest achievements they're ever going to have in their life. You know, I remember how I felt on the day I passed. It's like, you just feel like you're on top of the world. You know, it's crazy. You're like, holy shit, I just became one of these people. And, uh, you know, you're elated. You work for a very long time. You put your blood, sweat, and tears into, into passing this thing. So I can only imagine what it's like to be called up a month later and say, hey, never mind. You got to come do this again. You know, you're devastated. So I can, I can empathize with the candidates. I can also empathize to a certain extent with the, the organization too. Like, their exam was breached. They don't really have a really clear path to figuring out who got that access to that information and who didn't. What's the fairest way to deal with it? You know, their thought was, let's just pull it back from everybody and make them redo it. Let's just can't like void that test. Uh, because for them, you know, the, the um, you know, making sure that that test and when you earn that diploma, that that's, that, that, uh, integrity is intact is super important and I don't blame them for that. Um, so, you know, I can kind of see both sides of the, of the situation. Um, but it, you know, it was a crazy thing. I mean, it's just, it, it caused a huge rift within the organization. Uh, a lot of people, you know, 
lost some jobs that they had lined up because the you know they were waiting for these people to pass their exam some people got kind of caught up in bad press because they were you know happened to be part of this graduating class there or the the the, or the diploma got yanked from underneath of them uh when you know i know a lot of these people personally and i know that they there's no way they, they cheated you know so it's 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 tough to to understand how to think about it but uh hopefully we won't have to encounter something like that again and or if we do that we'll be better prepared next time because it was it was a cluster it was a mess yeah. <laughs> well, the part I, I think is so interesting too is uh, it came out that there was cheating and really the debate it sounds like is not around, hey, was there cheating or was there not? It's what do we do about it, right? right. And, and so it's kind of like it, when you get in a situation where everyone agrees that like something bad happened that shouldn't have happened, right? the, the like response to that, uh, I think there sounds like there's agreement around like, hey, there should be a response. It's just who do you respond to? How do you do it? Like, like that's where all the nuance really is. Totally. You know, and we, we looked at it as like, okay, let's say you go, you know, take, take the SATs or maybe the SAT is a bad, bad example. They got, they have cheating at the SAT now too. So you got to be careful. They, they got a, you're taking your bar exam or something like that. And it, it you know, somebody finds out that there's a leak of information about the bar exam. Are you going to just like, take that away from everybody that took it that time? Probably not. You're probably going to dig way more into it, figure out who had access to the information, who didn't, and maybe make them retake it or, you know, figure out some sort of punishment if there needs to be a punishment. Um, but to just kind of void the whole thing for everybody, I think, you know, that was where, you know, personally, I didn't agree with how they handled it. Um, but I don't run the organization, so it's not necessarily my choice. So that's my stance. All I'll say is maybe you should. Okay, moving on. <laughs> uh, so I asked uh, Twitter for all kinds of questions. And as you can imagine, I got everything from uh, the ridiculous, obnoxious ones to uh, super serious. So maybe let's play so much action on my Twitter feed. <laughs> <laughs> let's play a, a little game of rapid fire. Uh, first question is, what's your favorite wine and why? Uh, favorite wine. I was, if I have to pick one thing, it's going to be, uh, wines from the Northern Rhone region of France. Um, I, I love Syrah, the Syrah grape. It's actually, as we're talking, that's what I'm, I'm drinking some Syrah right now. Um, that's what I drink the most of. And that's, it, that's like the homeland of Syrah. So Northern Rhone. And I'm not super specific on the specific winery or region or any of that, but Rhone Syrah is where my heart's at. All right. What's the best brand or wine under twenty dollars? Oof. Uh, wow. I mean, there's a ton of things. It's really hard to, to say. Um, what do I have right now over here? Man, that's a really tough question. It depends on the grape. It depends on the region that you're looking to drink. I mean, I guess if I was going to drink something for under twenty bucks and think about best bang for the buck. I might actually drink Beaujolais. Well, sorry for the sirens here. Uh, Beaujolais is probably where you could get a lot of good bang for your buck for under 20 bucks. All right. Uh, there is a, I think a report that came out uh, that the human palate can't tell the difference uh, when you taste different wines over 20 bucks. Uh, I saw somebody tweeting about this. I have no clue what they're talking about, but I figured I'd ask you since you're the expert. 
uh, what, how is the relationship of uh, the human palate and the ability to taste the difference between wines uh, and price point related? Yeah, people love to have this, this uh, play this game. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm glad that I am surfacing it to play then. <laughs> I do think, uh, you know, in my mind anyway, as you know, being in this industry now for a long time and, and tasting a lot of things, I think that there is a significant increase in perception of quality between, you know, the lower price wines and call it up to around 50 bucks or so a bottle, um, maybe even a little bit higher than that. Once you get beyond that, it gets really difficult and it, it no longer becomes a question of quality anymore, but more so uh, branding, marketing, and, uh, and oftentimes rarity. Um, you know, rarity and, and kind of the supply demand thing has a huge impact on pricing and wine. But up to 50, call it 50 bucks, um, there's actually like a significant increase in quality. Like you're actually paying for um, better winemaking or better fruit, uh, you know, better grapes from a better site, call it. Um, so there is, there is some, some kind of linear, um, you know, value to be had from, from increasing the price there. Whether people can tell the difference or not is, is a different thing, right? Like, you know, telling quality and then telling whether you like it or not are two very different things. Like there's a lot of things that I like that are cheap and things that I like that are expensive. There's a lot of expensive wine out there that I think is sucks, you know? So I, I think people need to distinguish what is quality and uh, what is personal preference first, I think, before you can have that argument. Um, my feeling my and what i've always kind of touted is if you like it then it's good and just drink it so and it kind of removes that whole that whole argument so i know that you could do a blind tasting if i put five wines in front of you right now and literally you're blindfolded you could tell me with a scary amount of accuracy the type of wine where it's from the general year all of those things do you think that you would be accurate if i told you to predict the price it's selling for I think I could be pretty accurate with that. We, we actually used to play that game quite a bit and it used to be a way, that's one of the reasons why um, blind tasting is actually fairly practical um, when it comes to being a sommelier or being like in my position with retail where you're buying wines on a regular basis. You kind of want to taste things and understand like where's the quality here and, and be able to say like, all right, this wine's a good deal or this is way overpriced. Like if I taste something and I'm like, okay, this is really good. And it should roughly be, you know, call it 20, 30 bucks on the shelf. And then they want to sell it to me for $50. I'm like, no, no way. This does not taste like a $50 bottle of wine. On the flip side, if I'm like, wow, this is really freaking good. Um, this tastes, this drinks like something that's maybe 40, 50 bucks. And they say, oh, it's only $18. I'm going to buy that. I think it's great. So yes. Long answer, yes. I, I love it. And I, by the way, I don't doubt you. <laughs> but, but, but the thing is, you know, the general consumer probably isn't going to do that. So I think, you know, between 20 and $50 for most people that aren't training their palate on a regular basis and drinking wines all the time and doing this for their job, you know, most people are going to be pretty happy buying stuff in the like 20-ish dollar range. That's like really good. There's a lot of really good wine at that price. Yeah. What's the most underrated wine region? Most underrated. Oh, 
Um, man. Yeah, well, that could be argued. Maybe, uh, I think, that's a good, really good question. I could have a lot of arguments. Natalie just put this in my head, so I'm gonna roll with it. Uh, and it's, I'm gonna say Australia. Why? Australia gets kind of a bad reputation. I would have, if, if this was like five years ago, I would have said Beaujolais again, because um, Beaujolais used to have a really bad reputation, but that's, that reputation has changed. And, uh, and now I think everybody knows about it. Um, I think Australia, there's a lot of cool, interesting stuff down there um, that not a lot of people know about. Everybody knows like Yellowtail and big Barossa Shiraz and, you know, the big Cabernets and like the wines with critters on the label and things like that. But there's actually a ton of other stuff in Australia that's really interesting and really good um, that I think still is, is kind of on the upward swing. It's also okay. Australia. All right. Uh, what is the taste difference between biodynamic wine and regular wine? And the caveat here is I have no clue what the hell biodynamic wine is. So you're not gonna have to explain <laughs> that. So biodynamics is uh, just a, a method of farming. It's kind of like a really geeked out version of organics. If you think about it, like, you know, you think of conventional farming as like, you know, the goal is to grow things the most efficiently and, have the least uh, the least amount of interruptions and the most amount of control. You're probably going to spray a lot of herbicides, pesticides, and thing and chemicals and whatnot in your vineyard to get the uh, to get the, the to the goal that you're looking to accomplish. Uh, organics is very similar to organics with food, right? Like you're going to not spray as many of these chemicals and things like that, or you're going to use other control methods where. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of less harmful to the, uh, to the vineyard environment. Biodynamics is like the really like hippie nerdy version of that. So it, it follows a lot of really interesting, um, and, and weird philosophies, a lot of stuff that follows like the moon cycle and a lot of these, what they're called preparations where, you put certain things into the soils or onto the uh, onto the vines themselves at certain times of the year in order to follow this. And biodynamics is like it's it's it definitely creates a very healthy, um, robust uh, environment for the vines and for the vineyard. Like if you see a biodynamically farmed vineyard, it just looks really healthy, right? If you look at a, a conventionally farmed vineyard, it usually is like dirt with vines and some grapes growing on them and nothing else. Whereas a biodynamically farmed vineyard is like full of life and grasses and like insects flying around and all this stuff. So you can tell it's like a very healthy environment, but what it translates to into the glass is like not really, um, not really perceivable to, to that much of an extent. Like you definitely get healthier fruit coming off the vine. So at higher quality levels, you're going to, you know, you're getting better fruit quality here, um, but you're not necessarily going to taste a huge difference between a conventionally farmed site and a biodynamically farmed site. It's just not, it doesn't translate in the same way. Okay. What's your favorite at home wine tool? Um, my wine key. <laughs> what is that? Just the wine opener. 
It's the only thing I need. I don't use, I don't use shit. Uh, here, uh, here. Yeah, I've got my, my Ver, of course, Verve branded wine key. Um, you know, one of these guys, just a little simple double hinge wine key. There's so, a lot of wine gadgets out there. I think 99.9% .9 of them are all a waste of money. So, all right, that's fair. I'll say that. You, I, I will tell people that uh, one time at dinner, uh, I opened a bottle of wine in front of you and uh, I literally thought that you were gonna like banish me from the table. I was like, holy shit, I have no clue what I'm doing. This dude's opened like a million bottles in his life and I'm over here hoping I don't pop the, the uh, cork in half as I pull it out of the bottle. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think if, if anybody's like, uh, the one kind of gadget, if you will, that I think is actually worth the money is called Coravin, C-O-R-A-V-I-N. Um, and that is, I think it's really only applicable if what it, what it does is basically allows you to access your wines without opening the cork. Um, and you can pour out a single glass of wine and it's, it's a, it preserves the rest of the wine that's left over in the bottle. So it's a way that like, if you only like to drink a glass every now and then and not have to pop open the bottle, it preserves the wine for a longer period of time. So it's really useful only if you are having like a glass of wine a week or something. Anything beyond that, you might as well just open the bottle. Um, or if you're a collector that has a lot of wines in your cellar and you don't necessarily want to pop something open or you want to check in on something to see how it is, Corbin's really useful for that. Um, but otherwise, I think most other things on the market, the, um, the aerators and all that kind of stuff is just kind of, a, I, I personally think it's a waste. <laughs> What's the best movie about wine or the best wine movie? Mm. And you can't say Psalm. Okay. That was going to be my answer. Um, you know, I think my, my favorite is Sideways still. I like Sideways. It's a good flick. It's just really funny. Um, it's pretty accurate in, uh, in how they describe wine. They actually did their research and like talk about it in the right way. Um, so that would be my favorite. All right. And now the most important part of our conversation I've saved for, saved for the end, which is uh, you and I both live with uh, dictators. And uh, <laughs> one of my favorite things, by the way, we're having this conversation and Plin is in the room with me and Natalie's in the room with you. So they can hear this, <laughs> which makes it even better uh, that we get to have this conversation. But uh, one of my favorite things that you and I both do is uh, use the excuse of, I'm not done with that yet. So I want you to explain the importance for every man to know the trick of, I'm not done with that yet, as a way to get out of jail whenever they need it. Yeah, I think it's a great move. And I think it's uh, maybe underutilized. Um, I can probably look around the room right now and find a few things that I'm not quite done with yet. Um, meaning, my coffee that's sitting on the counter over here, um, maybe a, a dish from lunch that's sitting in the sink, something like that. Um, or, you know, the, the coffee table right now is cleaned off, so I can't really use a real life example, but you know, if you finished your plate of food and you haven't done anything with it yet, I'm not done with that. I think it's a, it's a very solid reason for why you've left it behind. My, I always get shit, you know, for, you know, I'll take my food over to the sink and put it in the sink instead of putting it in the dishwasher. And I always get shit for that. Um, but, you know, 
saying that you maybe want to come back to it later, I think is a very viable reason to, uh, to leave it there. It's really hard to argue with that logic. You, you might come back. <laughs> An avocado where the skin is just like, you know, sitting on the counter still, but there's maybe like a smidge, little sliver of the avocado left. You could argue it's not, you're not done. Pretty, pretty reasonable. So I think what, it's very reasonable. What, what makes this all funny is uh, Dustin uh, and I actually- How, how, how like uh, red is Polina with, with anger right now? Because Nat- Natalie's like losing her mind over here. <laughs> I, I think they're actually texting each other at the moment. So we're going to be in trouble when this is over. So let's get all of our anger out now. Uh, but th- we obviously met each other uh, because Polina and Natalie knew each other. And uh, I always tell people that um, you, Natalie, and then uh, our other friends, Ali and Keelan, are the only people I know that are in a group chat where somehow the group chat is dominated by just photos and text messages about all the things that you, me, and Ali do that they're not happy about. And so <laughs> say something dumb, it ends up in the group chat. You know, leave something <laughs> out, a photo's going in the group chat. And I'm like, somehow. <laughs> I'm not ashamed. Like I'm perfectly fine. Cause I know they, those two guys do the same thing I do. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, you got somebody on your team on the other side of this. It's like, yes. You know, like I got away with it. I, I know the other guys here are going to like support me. You know, they've got my back. It's, it's Look, nice to know. D- Dustin wasn't done with it yet. I already know when I see the photo, he wasn't done with it. What do you, what do you, why are you taking that photo? Absolutely. Yeah. If Paulina sends something into the chat, I can find a very reasonable reason for why, you know, you did what you did. <laughs> Before I end up, I ask the same uh, two questions. First is, uh, what is the most important book you've ever read? The most important book I've ever read. Um, wow. I mean, from, gosh, for my life, well, this might be, this might actually be stupid, but um, it had the biggest impact on my trajectory in my professional career um, is Wine for Dummies. That was my first wine book. That's an awesome answer. <laughs> <laughs> it, was the, it was the book that like gave me the introduction into this, uh, this world that I live in now. And uh, it's the book that changed my life. Not, maybe not the most uh, compelling book in the world or maybe the most interesting and certainly not the most sophisticated, but it, it's had the biggest impact. So I'll say that. Do you ever recommend it for other people to go read it? Like if people who are interested in wine today, would you recommend that book? Well, you know, when I read that, it was a long time ago. So I don't know. I, I think, yeah, generally speaking, yes. But I also think that there are some other really good introductory books that are out there for wine that um, probably do a little bit of a better job at this point. All right. And then last question, and then you get to ask me one to finish up is uh, aliens, believer or non-believer? Definitely believer. Why? I believer. The, the universe is just too big. Like we have such a small view into what's out there. I just feel like out of the trillions of other potential planets, there's got to be someone out there that's like existing right now i just i don't i think the odds are in in our favor that there is other life at, at some point we're rec- we're recording this uh the day after it came out that these uh i'll call them uh alien researchers have discovered a second radio signal so 
about three or four years ago, they discovered a radio signal uh, that was every 16 days was being shot from, you know, deep in some other galaxy, you know, millions of years away or whatever the hell it is. Uh, and so recently they found a second one that is being transmitted every 157 days on a like perfectly frequent basis. And so when I hear things like that, and then they followed up with, we can't explain it. It just furthers my conviction. Like, Hey, there's a lot of things we don't understand. And like, you find enough of these radio signals, one of them's going to be an alien, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't know. I just think it's, uh, there's just, it's too vast um, that we're the, and, and for me to think that we're the only like life forms out there. I just, I, to me, that just doesn't make logical sense. It's just too big. There's too much of a likelihood that there's other stuff out there. So I, I believe. I think that's going to end up being a very, uh, very accurate view of the world. Uh, what's the one question you have for me to finish up? Uh, all right. So what should I ask? What should I ask? You see how he's enlisting help from Natalie so that yep, later she uh, can yeah. get yelled at. Um, what should I ask you? I will say where, um, what's the, so I'll ask a restaurant question. I know you're not necessarily a restaurant person, but, uh, <laughs> what is the, when, when things get back to normal, what is the first restaurant that you and Paulina are going to want to go to when you can? Oh. I'll give you the uh, the actual most honest answer possible, and then I'll give you the answer that you're probably more aiming for. Uh, the first one is uh, McDonald's is always going to be number one. Um, we've actually gone, so I can't really uh, say that it's going to be a thing McDonald's that we're going to open this whole time, right? Like you can get to go from McDonald's. That's what makes them the best restaurant in the world. Literally, a <laughs> pandemic can't shut down McDonald's. Like they're always there. It's always consistent. You know what you're going to get. Uh, no, so, so I think that. Uh, if I had to choose one restaurant in Mc, or, uh, in New York, um, and obviously this is one that I like that also Polina likes, so kind of the, the overlap of interest, uh, probably Flex Muscles. Like I, I feel like Flex Muscles is, uh, is probably going to be uh, the first one. Other ones that, uh, that, that we like, um, what is it, a ABC Kitchen? Is that a, that, that's yeah. a restaurant, right? Yeah. Been there. We like that place. Uh, trying to think of what I like the flex muscles answer. That's great. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's been interesting to ask people because you know I think it's it's it kind of shows what people have been missing during all of this, and I, I find that um, I think a lot of restaurant culture before COVID happened was everybody always wanted to go to the, the, the new hot restaurant. You know, the new opening that like everybody wants to try to get into. And now with everything shut down and we can't go to the places that make us the most happy and the most comfortable, everybody wants like their standard go-to and like things that they, they miss the most, you know? So I think it's, it's going to be interesting to see what's busy when things uh, do reopen. For sure. And, and it's also a thing, I think where uh, people now understand that like the restaurant experience, like restaurateurs have known this forever. It's not just the food, right? It's not just the, the alcohol and the wine. 
it's also like the social component of it. It's the atmosphere, it's the environment, it's the staff. It's like all of these uh, things that feed into like the actual experience make going to a restaurant. And so when I think of certain places, um, you know, I, I don't know, take, some, take kind of like a New York staple, like uh, Union Square Cafe, right? Mm-hmm. Like when you walk in there, it has a very specific vibe. It has a very specific type of menu. It has a very specific like expectation you have when you walk in. And so I, I do think that people uh, will have a greater appreciation for a lot of that stuff. Who knows, does that last forever or does it kind of you know decay over time again? But it just to me, like that part's really interesting because there's some people who will go to a restaurant specifically because of the food. I think a lot of people subconsciously though would also go for those environments. And so you mentioned earlier, like what, you know, it would be weird to go to Union Square Cafe and be the only person eating in there. Mm-hmm. Right. Like, like it actually be eerie, right? Like you'd kind of be like, like what's going on here. So I do think that there's almost this like self-fulfilling prophecy of like, as a society or as a community, everyone has to decide to go back. And then once that happens, like you get those environments and like it, people want to go more and more and more. Um, I just don't know how long it'll take. Right. And yeah. Yeah. That's a good question. Yeah. We'll see. We'll see. I think it's going to be really interesting to see what, what happens when things do reopen. And I think uh, there's going to be an element of nostalgia and like appreciation for the places that like maybe you took for granted before, right? Like you really hope don't go away and you just can't wait to get back to. And I think uh, at least for a period of time, my guess is it won't be, it's not going to be the cool thing to try to go to the new hotspot anymore. It's going to be, I want to go support the places that are, that have always been my go-tos and my favorites and the places that I'm most comfortable with. Um, We'll see. For sure. Where, um, for people who want to order wine, where can they go? And then people who want to badger you with questions, where can they find you on the internet? <laughs> uh, so vervewine.com is uh, where you can order some awesome wines from us. Um, we've got a great team of people, uh, really accessible, um, like chats and things like that, um, that you can, you know, if you're having trouble finding something or you're just looking for recommendations and things like that, we try to make it really easy for people to get those recommendations and talk to real live humans uh, while you're navigating the website. So that's uh, it's a great spot. Um, I can be found uh, on Instagram and Twitter at just at Dustin Wilson MS um, on both of those platforms. So those, those I check pretty regularly. So what do you use more Twitter or Instagram? I'm more of an Instagram guy. I, I I get on Twitter quite a bit for uh, to kind of check news and see what's going on out there in the world and what conversations are taking place. But I'm, I'm kind of more of a spectator on Twitter than I am like an engager on Twitter. Um, <laughs> same, same. <laughs> yeah, not so much. <laughs> I love watching pomp on Twitter. It's great. <laughs> um, I got to remember that you're watching sometimes and maybe I won't tweet all the crazy shit. (laughs) (laughs) No, I love it. It's great. I particularly like outside of uh, John Legend and uh, Chrissy Teigen as my, maybe my favorite couple on Twitter. Well, I think you and Pauline are are maybe edging them out a little bit as my favorite couple to watch on Twitter. I'm glad that you're, uh, the two of you you on there together is, is pretty epic. I love it. I'm glad that you're buying us back some points after I said that we live with dictators. So uh, maybe we won't get in too much trouble. (laughs) All right, listen, I appreciate you taking the time to do this. Uh, I could not recommend uh, Verve Wine more. So go check that out, guys. and, uh, And we'll do this again, Dustin. Thanks, man. Appreciate it. 
All right, guys. Thanks for listening to that episode. I hope you enjoyed it just as much as I did. My goal is to educate as many people with these conversations as possible. So please go subscribe on your favorite podcast channel, leave a five-star rating, and a review. These things really help the podcast get higher up on the popularity charts, which ultimately brings more people to learn. Also, don't forget you can go to YouTube to watch each conversation in video format as well. Just search my name, Anthony Pompliano, on YouTube, and you'll find our channel with hundreds of awesome and informative videos. Thanks again for listening to this one, and I'll see you for the next one.